Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, welcome. Um, My name is Kate Gruber, hosting tonight for ERW, and I've got some special guests with me uh, this evening. We are going to talk about everyone's favorite, um, well everyone's favorite pre-Hamilton, um, historical inspired movie musical uh, and smash Broadway hit 1776. So here with me making her ERW uh, debut tonight is Becca Grawl. Welcome. Hi. So excited us. to be um, here. Thank you. Thank you. She's joining us from, from DC. Um, Becca works with DC Tours by Foot and also gives tours for a tour of her own. Um, which please check them out um, on Instagram. I think it's just at a tour of her own and on Facebook as well. Um, so you can find all of um, all these amazing hidden stories of, of women in our nation's capital, which is amazing. And of course, welcome back, um, Liz Williams from Historic Alexandria. Um, Liz and I had a chance to gush about all things Hamilton a couple weeks ago over here on the RW um, and demanded equal time Yes. For 1776. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> that's right. So, um, thank you for joining us. And um, we're going to jump, we're going to jump right on into it. Um, so, what is, <laughs> what is 1776? If you have never seen this film, um, please consider this your invitation to do so now. I believe you can watch it on Amazon Prime. Um, normally, like, 10 years ago, I'd say go to Blockbuster and rent it um, because it's important to uh, check out your local library. Um, the version that you really need to watch, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes, is really the restored director's cut, which I think is the only thing you can watch digitally at this point. Um, uh, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. Um, I am trying to pull double duty here and watch our live video and talk at the same time. And that is really difficult to do. We'll figure that out in a minute. Um, so what is 1776? Um, this is a Broadway play um, that was, um, you know, first performed in 1969. So right there on the eve 
um, of America's Bicentennial and then translated into a major motion picture, which came out in 1972. And it follows the, um, the romping escapades of a few select founding fathers from May of 1776 through July 4th of 1776 and the trials and tribulations of, um, that they face while trying to um, declare independence and then vote on said declaration of independence. Um, and all of the uh, knee slapping puns and jokes and musical numbers in between. <laughs> so um, something that we've been chatting about um, as a little group here um, was really about how and when and why um, this musical was really written um, in the 60s. Um, guys, feel free to feel free to jump in. Um, thinking about when this was when this was written, the um, the lyrics, music and lyrics were written by um, uh, by Sherman Edwards, who I read spent like six years, upwards of six years, researching um, to write the lyrics. Um, actually, getting into the archives to be inspired by the historic documents, like the letters between. Abigail Adams and John Adams, which we can get into. Um, but why, why the 1960s? Why the late 1960s? Well, I, I will say Sherman Edwards is interesting because he was a, a songwriter. That was his gig. He wrote like pop songs, but he was also a high school history teacher. And his whole kind of motivation to do this was to try to make history more accessible. So that's one of the reasons he wants to do this. And he wants to do it because the 1960s is a time of great upheaval. Uh, we're in all of these, the civil rights movement, the women's movement. Um, you've got uh, this these huge big elections that are happening. Um, it's a really tumultuous time. And it's a time where Sherman Edwards thinks it would be wise to look back and see where, where we come from. So that's sort of his motivation. And I love, because I love teachers and shout out to all of the wonderful teachers out there um, that he does this coming from that that educator place that he he writes this in a way and he creates a show that he wa wants young people to actually sit through and enjoy <laughs> which is not always what historians do right he comes at it from the teacher perspective and I think that's why it's endured for so long well and the fact that he he used a lot of the um um original documents to build his songs and the 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 narrative the script of this movie it it has a much uh it has that that teacher vibe to it because it's it's this original words and from letters and um you can you can harken back to um you know that exact point in time versus uh um, you know, the, the creative uh, adjustments of history, which I know we'll be doing airing um, grievances part two later. But, um, but the fact that he, he wove in original words to this is, um, I think, why it resonates um, as well, because it's, it's true to its, um, its century. One little anecdote I really love, sorry, Kate, but one anecdote I love is Sherman Edwards writes these songs um, and he's trying to like get people to turn this into a show and he shares it with Peter Hunt who would go on to direct um, both the the stage show and the movie and Peter Hunt said after hearing Sit Down John the first song he said he learned more about the founding fathers than he had learned through an entire history of schooling and that's how he knew he wanted to direct the show just because there was so much character so much conflict so much of of kind of warts and all kind of taking these guys off the pedestal and just getting to know them a little bit more as people and so I love that I think it comes across right from the opening 
uh, of the show and movie. And if you haven't seen it, I promise it, the first 10 minutes will hook you. Truly. Absolutely. Yep. That's um, Becca, what I was going to, what I was going to ask was guys, let us know in the comments, if you are a teacher and you've used this film um, in one of your classrooms, or if you are um, a current student or a former student um, in any way, shape or form. And, and if 1776 um, was something that was part of your, uh, your schooling, let us, let us know. I know I watched this um, in, uh, I think in my eighth grade history class, maybe that sounds about right. Yeah. And, um, and every summer um, at, uh, uh, at William & Mary, we'd always watch this and um, some of her and that I used to be involved with um, because of that line uh, there towards yeah. the end that Jefferson went to William & Mary. Um, <laughs> so, well, you know, we had to watch that. Had, you know, you have to sit through like two and a half hours before that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's real but, tribe uh, pride there. Yeah, yeah, go try. Um, or, <laughs> go Harvard, <laughs> depending on where you're watching this from. Um, but, um, but Becca, you also brought up a point that, that uh, you know, this film does so much um, to, to tell you a little bit about, you know, the context of the summer of 1776 and, and really who, who a lot of the players were on the ground um, in the Continental Congress. We will get to historical inaccuracies here in a minute. Um, but I did want to bring up that um, that something something that that I think um, Sherman um, Edwards or somebody has said about this is that um, you know what what the real point was was to try to he said decardboardize um, all of our cardboard national heroes with playful irreverence and I think that's really what this movie does is it takes a lot of people off of their pedestals. And again, like Hamilton, but before Hamilton, really humanizes um, a lot of the founding father generation. And again, like what you said earlier, warts and all, um, you know, really calls down that there were arguments, there were, um, you know, a lot of disagreements and, um, uh, you know, grievances with each other in trying to decide whether or not to declare independency or, you know, and writing the document itself. Um, and, and obviously we're just getting a small snippet of imagined conversations here. Um, but it's, it's an important acknowledgement that people are people. Uh, yep, and I, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's an important lesson. Um, anytime we want to take pop culture um, into the classroom is people are people, uh, whether they, live, they lived 250 years ago or they're living right now. Uh, we have more in common um, with the past than we think we do. Um, I definitely think, and I know we're going to talk historical inaccuracies in a little bit, but one thing that I think is accurate very much is that we think, I think we like to think of the founders as a monolith, and they were not. They were different people with different political opinions, different backgrounds, different personalities, and so there was no single school of thought when it comes to the founders, and this illustrates that so beautifully and dramatically in the show and in the movie, uh, and it really helps to remind us that so much of what we see in politics and government today isn't new disagreements and fighting and and nitpicking and you know uh horse trading and all of that 
is truly uh, woven into our founding. And I think that something that we try to do on our tours is remind people that that we are more, like you said, more connected to the past than we realize. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's something that's accurate about this film is whether you want to get into all the little, we'll get into those inaccuracies, but I think you could show this to students or to first time viewers and say, this is a pretty good representation of how the sausage gets made to somewhat quote uh, Hamilton, right? This is how it happens. People fight and disagree and they don't all share the same opinion of what this country should be. Oh, they come sure. like at the end, you know, not to give away the, you know, the end, but they kind of consensus. I know, right? What happens? Well, uh, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but they like they 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 talk, they have consensus, they they figure it out. They might not agree, but they're like, you know what? We're we'll we'll we will try it. We will do it. We will agree and move forward together as these 13 colonies and um and see what happens. And there may be a cane fight on the floor, but at the end of the day, we're going to come together and get it done. Either yeah, like hang, hang <laughs> together or hang separately, I believe is what, uh, what Ben said. So, uh, and right. those cane fights wouldn't go away anytime soon right. either. <laughs> Arguably, well, yeah, get, they would get worse. Um, yeah. So this is a smash hit on Broadway when it debuts in 69. It wins the Tony um, for, for best Best musical. Best musical. Um, <laughs> um, it beats out hair and promises, promises, which is all Burt Bacharach music. So it definitely stands out culturally in 1969, even on Broadway, because you think about hair and the That's cultural amazing. significance of that. And yet 1776 sort of pulls out this surprise win. And I think it's because it, it, it does kind of decarboardize these these people and makes it relatable to, to the viewer. Right. So smash it on Broadway, but that doesn't mean that it's going to do super well. Um, when, <laughs> when, uh, when Broadway goes to the movies, um, and this movie actually comes out um, on the big screen in 1972, um, I, you know, thank you guys. You both uh, introduced me to um, Ebert's original review of this film when it came out in 1972. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> what did Ebert think when it came out? Who we? <clears throat> <clears throat> Those sad little two stars. He was not digging this movie. <laughs> I think we should let people know some other films that came out in 72, right? The Godfather comes out in 1972. Uh, some very serious auteur-driven dramas. And then here... Yeah, and then, oh yeah, Cabaret is the other big movie musical. And then here comes 1776. And Ebert's Lucky little turkey. Yeah. And Ebert's response is fascinating to me because it's not that this should be, I don't know, he doesn't want it to be The Godfather or Cabaret, but he's he's got some issue with how, how, how they represent the founding fathers. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he was really happy with... Um, uh, John Adams or Ben Franklin singing, um, or uh, any of the kind of the the that humanizing factor that makes this such a popular movie. Um, Roger Ebert just could not get past that because he um, he hero worshipped these founders and clearly stated that in his review that he was aghast that um, a movie would 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 do this to these these great men of history um so egregious that they are singing about 
um, you know, how terrible Bumping John Adams is, you know, grow. yeah, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. here in the comments because this is just too delicious to not read in its entirety. And if we're going to talk about primary sources, we're going to we're going to make sure that you have access to the primary source here, RogerEbert.com. Um, <laughs> my favorite though, um, where'd it go? I really want to read this sentence because it's glorious. 1776, this is Ebert. This is an insult to the real men who were Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, and the rest. The rest. You know, <laughs> he says that they're, they're coming off as a set of caricatures, but realistically, I mean, again, going back to this idea of like decardboardizing American history. I, they were I, men. They ben were Franklin loved ladies. I mean, <laughs> What can you do? But yeah. I mean, if you've read John and Abigail's letters, I mean, they're intimate. They're yeah. and they're playful and they're loving and then they're intense and and I mean, these were these were men. They were human beings. Uh, and it, it's amazing because it, it is a negative review, but it's actually if you're Sherman Edwards, it's positive because that's exactly what he was trying to do. Take right. them off the pedestal, make them relatable, show you the side that you don't get in the history books, the bodiness and the 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 ego and the self-doubt and all the things that, that we grapple with. So in some ways, Ebert's just affirming what Sherman <laughs> Edwards set out to do. But from a film perspective, you know, you sink all this money in and Jack Warner puts out this big splashy musical and one of the, the most important critics is going to go, yeah, no. no, how dare you? <laughs> well, there was, so this, let's transition really quickly. Um, so, so when this movie comes out in 1972, um, obviously this is a product of the 60s and it's very much a product um, when it debuts um, in the theater. The version that you see in the theater is a product of the 70s because... Um, Richard Nixon had something to say about it. Um, he doesn't give it two thumbs up. He actually really likes this film um, and sees, um, you know, sees an early version of it before. I think it's the week that the previews um, get sent out to theaters and, um, you know, billboards are starting to go up that this movie is debuting or, um, you know, this week and Nixon sees it at the White House and he's got one little problem with it. And this, this is actually a problem Nixon had raised earlier because this uh, 1776, the musical is invited to the White House in 1970. This is the first time a full length musical will be performed in the White House, which gives it such a great little Hamilton connection, um, really. Um, but they, they're going to perform it. And Nixon and his staff are like, yeah, we, we have an issue with a number. There's a number in here that we feel criticizes us, uh, which is the cool, cool conservative men or the cool, cool considerate men, depending on which version of the title you prefer. Um, and the cast, <laughs> the cast was really anxious about this. Nixon, not a popular president. Uh, this is as we're going into the Watergate era, we're going into this very divisive era and cynical era in American politics. And the cast is hesitant to go perform for him, but they do on the, on the promise that they can do the entire show. So they did the entire show at the White House. But when it's time for the movie, Nixon's got a little bit more power. He's very good friends with Jack Warner. Warner's a big uh, funder for his campaign. And he's able to call up Warner right on the phone and say, there's no way you're keeping this number in. Doing it at the White House was one thing. Pol politicians get it. But you can't just let the American people think conservatives are the enemy. Uh, you know, it, it, it criticizes me and my party. 
um, which is kind of what Sherman Edwards was doing, criticizing the, the people who would hold on to security and prosperity and, and property and not take a risk. And so he gets Warner to cut uh, and not just cut it, but he wants the the film it, the footage to be destroyed, right? Shredded. Yeah, which is terrifying to me. Yeah, yeah. And you know the funny part, you know, I grew up on um, watching it Fourth of July, and I knew where all the commercial cuts were because I'm a nerd like that. And you know, I, I have it embedded in my brain. So when the director's cut came out, and I watched this movie with the footage in because they. They didn't shred it, thank God. Um, they kept it in um, and put it off with the archives with the rest of its stuff. And you know, they found it. I think in the eighties or nineties. Help me out, Becca. But um, I, know, I think like in the late eighties, early nineties. So they were able to put the movie back together the way it was originally intended. And now everyone who nerded out, you know, on the TV version of it has the full effect and this whole new experience of seeing. Um, this really important song that um, a lot of folks never never got to see originally um, in the movie version and it is a really powerful um, song presentation the way they filmed it I and mean, it's just um, really the, cool it's really yeah. the musical number yeah um, of the of the film and it is of the stage play as well if you see it there's a um, you know very you know very poignant and dramatic um minuet choreography maybe. the choreography, choreography is really done yeah. on stage um and it's it's going back to becca's earlier point it's really the language um which was so anachronistic to the 18th century but very well entrenched in the 20th century of the right versus the left the political right versus the political left the conservatives um being positioned in 1776 um, as, you know, very much the, um, you know, they're very much the villains of this film um, and being able to make connections. I think, you know, Nixon was very rightfully concerned, rightfully concerned that, um, you know, that, that his party would be starting, you know, would be conflated. And again, that's, of course, exactly the, the modern political commentary that was being made at the time. Um, but you do see why it was taken out. But yeah, thankfully the the film has been uh, um, restored to its original version, which is why it's important that you get the director's cut um, or that you find a way to watch that um, online because it really, uh, this moment in the film really, really makes it um, from, a, from a cinematic perspective. <laughs> I uh, think where else are you gonna see, you know, 30 plus members of the Continental Congress <laughs> minuetting and dancing with each other? I mean, and then and then storming out, independent jumping in wall. their carriages. Yeah, they get up in their carriages and their big flourish. I mean, if you are at all a fan of the American Revolution, <laughs> I'm not sure why that does not appeal to you. I think historically, it's so important to not just. Uh, I mean, it is so cinematic and beautiful. But I think it's a it's often a fallacy when we look back at this founding era and we look back at 1776 in particular, when there's no guarantee this war is going to be won. Uh, in fact, there, there's very little to indicate that we could even get out of that year, let alone. Um, and it really illustrates why were people hesitant to just throw it all away? Because now we look back and go, yeah, 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 no, I would have been. I would have been for a revolution. I would have fought for independence. I, you know, everybody wants to think that, but it was a big gamble. And things like uh, 
even the olive branch uh, sort of resolution and all of that had only been the previous year, there was still so much hope. And so I think it illustrates how loyalists felt. It illustrates how people who maybe aren't radicals felt. And so I think that context balances the film. And you, you said the word villain, they're sort of set up to be maybe villains or antagonists, but I think it actually makes it much richer because you yeah. can, a, a, as much as it certainly reflects the political time of the 60s and 70s with that language of the right and left, I think it gives that important historical context to why might someone be hesitant to risk treason, um, which is not a little thing. Yep. Becky, you're totally, you're totally right. If you, um, if you have the director's cut and want to watch the entirety of the director's commentary, which you should, the director makes the point that what they wanted to do was they didn't want, you know, most, most movies um, in Hollywood are uh, whodunits. But he said that 1776 is a story of how done it. Uh, so uh. they were trying to create a film that told you, um, and again, this is maybe we can use this to transition into um, grievances round Robin, but um, you know, not trying to do a film that was 100% historically accurate that was going to give you a real taste for the John Adams and the Benjamin Franklin, but really highlight the difficulties and the uncertainties of writing the Declaration of Independence and just how, um, uh, you know, really what a, what a tumultuous and scary, uncertain year 1776 really was and, and the era. Um, I will, I said I wasn't, I told um, Liz and Becca I wasn't sure I was going to say this on Facebook Live, but I will say this. Um, yes. Watching this, <laughs> watching this this afternoon. Um, one of my favorite characters in this is the portrayal um, of Charles Thompson, um, who is the Secretary of Continental Congress. Uh, no, not Charles Thompson. It's it's McNair. I'm so McNair. Sorry. I'm drinking as to give McNair. you a, a, yeah. more rum. There's no rum in here, but <laughs> there should be. I'll drink uh, for you. Charles yeah. Thompson is a wonderful character who I told Liz Williams um, is basically David from Shit Creek. But um, no, but it's, it's McNair, who is the official custodian um, of the Continental Congress and acted thusly until uh, mid-September 1776. So anyway, um, he is all of us in 2020. Um, because every time George Washington, um, or well, every time a post writer delivers a new dispatch from George Washington, McNair is like, I cannot believe this is dispatch number 372. I mean, it's like Becca. Sweet Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, he just every time it's like dispatch, dispatch from Washington. <laughs> yeah, 319. He just oh, sweet Jesus. It's like really, we're still doing this. And every time they ask him to do anything, it's open the windows, close the windows. And he's just like so done with everything and with Congress and the whole thing. Just and so done. very relatable, just like over it, over it all. Right, but just that point of um, there's a there's very much a sense of urgency when it comes to declaring independence, but at the same time, back to Becca's point, um, there's also this sense of just monotony and and uncertainty. And man, we thought this was going to be we thought this was going to be a year tops. We thought we thought we wouldn't still be having these conversations, but we're still in committees. We're still trying to figure it all out. It just feels like such a relatable. Um, 2020 moment, but it feels like such a real, just again, that humanizing decarbonization idea 
of there are some real emotions in here. Not all of them are loyalist or patriot, but sometimes they are disbelief and uncertainty and exhaustion and just, you know, I am like emotionally done. <laughs> and I think that's an important point to make. But let's move, let's, let's transition here into the errands of grievances um, from an authenticity standpoint. Because um, we got a lot that we want to get to because we're all extremely Where to about. begin? So, um, wait, Liz, let's start. Let's start with you. Give me, give me a couple. Air your grievances. Well, I have, I'll do two. I'll be good. Um, one, the, the faint, the, the, at the end when Judge Wilson changes his vote so he doesn't, you know, become the the instant villain of destroying freedom for America that didn't happen and it, you know the way they they crafted the movie it was just so it was so brilliantly done and so dramatic and you're, you're like on the edge of your seat like oh my god he's gonna actually like have a backbone and do something for himself and then you know once you read oh no that nope that nope that didn't happen um and then the other one, since um, I am a Delaware native and um, part of my drinking game for 1776 is you have to drink every time Delaware is on the, the screen. So um, I went Whoa. to see, I know, I know, right? <laughs> um, so, so I went to Caesar Rodney High School and, um, you know, Caesar Rodney was not an old dude. He was sick, but not super old like the movie has him. So, um, but he did ride from Dover to Philly to cast the vote. So Delaware's not tied and yay freedom. But um, but those are my two my two big ones. Go with that. We should have turned, you know, guys, I'm so sorry. We should have planned this out better. We should have done a drinking game to this Rev War revelry with your rum. Every time we make a Lee comment um, or try to be punny, or uh, you know, we should have we should have done a rum shot. Why didn't you think about that, Liz? Where were you on that one? Oh man! Well, next time. <laughs> next time. Next time. Becca, what you got? I, it's hard to know where to begin. This was something we were talking about in sort of a, a pre-conversation prior to this, but there's a lot of historical inaccuracy, period. I think we can touch on this later. To me, the question is, does that matter so much? Um, but when it comes to the grievances that I have, one is, I think, parallel to yours that I, I don't want to step on, but it's the women they choose to be included. I think including the female characters is so important. The context that we get from Abigail Adams is, is priceless and I think very forward thinking and very interesting. But then they, they choose to include Martha Jefferson, which is not a choice that I love. And I sort of want justice for a woman I think is very underappreciated in American history. And that's Mary Norris Dickinson, uh, the wife of John Dickinson. She was in Philadelphia in 1776. She was connected to political life. She was uh, actually into real estate and politics and all sorts of things that weren't really the, the woman's sphere at that time. So now in 2020, because of the work I do with the tour of her own and my own interest in women's history, I watch it and I'm like, there were so many other interesting women where our are they? Why aren't they there? I think my other grievance is the the ages of the characters portrayed. Um, because if you watch it, it's all like middle-aged actors. Everybody in this film is like a middle-aged actor. 
Um, but that is not the Continental Congress. In fact, you've got people like Stephen Hawk Hopkins and Benjamin Franklin who are old uh, and at the latter part of their careers. But most of these guys were the cream of the crop of their colonies. And a lot of them are in their 20s and 30s. They're at the peak, right, at the, at the, at the ascent. Um, Edward Rutledge, 26 years old. I remember what I was doing at 26. And I was definitely not uh, helping to usher in independence. So I, I find that a little troubling because when you watch this, you are getting the idea of these people as human, but to be, I think, a little bit more, I don't know, relatable or to really understand it, I think having younger actors and really reflecting the age of these men mm -hmm. might be eye-opening because I think we look back and think of them as old men. But Absolutely. That, that's not that's not the case. They were young. Many of them were radical. They were progressive. They were ready to try something new because they were a new generation raised on this new continent. Um, so that I think is something that that bugs me. And I, I've seen some stage versions that try to address that, but I, I would love to see someday maybe like a film version that maybe that, that, that maybe tried getting the ages a little bit a little bit closer. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, and similarly, <laughs> my uh, one of my major grievances um, again, it, yeah, it's I love the film so much. Don't get me wrong, but Martha Jefferson really. Do we have <laughs> to do this to poor Martha Jefferson? Talk about a woman who is completely misrepresented pretty much every time you see her in anything, which isn't much anyway. Um, she's just so, I mean, number one, never came to Philly. I'm sorry. Number two, this poor woman had a life. She had, unfortunately, a very short life, but she was not, this just was not her demeanor. <laughs> I think she, I think she was physically hurting and emotionally hurting for the majority of her adult life. Remember, Jefferson is her second husband. She has already lost um, two children at this point. Um, the reason why she um, wouldn't have been able to go to Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 is because um, I think I had read that she had just recently suffered a miscarriage, um, but she was still, you know, grieving the loss of, of a son from a couple months beforehand or an, un I'm sorry, I'm not even sure that we even know if it was a son or a daughter. Uh, I think it was a son. Um, who had just passed, um, and this woman was physically ill a lot of the time, suffered many, many complications um, from a couple pregnancies. Obviously, that's, um, that's how she, um, unfortunately, how she passes um, is because of just a very long, I um, mean, her body just couldn't take it. Her last pregnancy was very difficult for her, um, and unfortunately, she passes as a result, but I just find it so... I just find it really stressful to hear her say the words that she's this, that she's loving life. I mean, her, she's in this musical because it's this dramatization of Jefferson can't get his work done because he's, he's a newlywed and he's thinking about his wife. Well, he's not a newlywed. I mean, they've been married for a couple of years at this point. I can't remember when they get married. It's, it's early seventies, I think. Um, but, you know, she, she's just this happy, shiny, woman that comes to Philadelphia. Young, bright, little, yeah. yes. Exactly. To, to, to <laughs> they have their moments. So TJ's not distracted anymore and he can really focus on getting the work done that needs to get done. I, you know, don't know who's watching this. So I don't want to get she, too specific. She seems to be in, in the show and in the film really there, I think 
to just flesh out Jefferson. And I think if I were to air a third grievance, it's the representations of Adams versus Jefferson. <laughs> Whereas Jefferson does get kind of, I think a little bit of the heroes right up in this, right? Um, there's, they, it's a very, um, a very glowing sort of representation of Jefferson. And I think this beautiful wife is part of that, that he's just this guy in love and, and you know, it, it softens him uh, and makes him kind of more relatable. And then you've got Adams who's obnoxious and disliked and he's sort of the butt of all these jokes. But in 1776, he was actually really well respected. And all these quotes we have from Adams come 40 years later when he's had a very difficult political career and everybody does kind of hate him. And now he's sort of licking his wounds looking back on the past. But in 1776, he wasn't this sort of um, grading figure that everybody hated. And, and I, I, it works so well dramatically that I like that it's that way in the show. But as somebody who thinks John Adams gets the short end of the sick when it comes to historical remembrance, especially here in Washington, DC, we don't have a memorial to Adams, even though Congress has authorized one several mm. times over. Um, he's still someone, I think, especially in kind of the Virginia history who gets overshadowed by Washington and Jefferson at Madison, um, to then have to watch the movie and be like, oh, he's everybody's favorite whipping boy. When really he was like a well-respected member of Congress who got a lot of stuff done. <laughs> and that's my John Adams rant. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ping off of that for a second, and then we'll and then we'll move on. Um, Liz, you mentioned earlier how how beautifully um, the, um, the 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 musical numbers and the writing really do pull from a lot of primary sources. Obviously, we have eight million Franklin quips um, in the film, um, but there's a Actually, it's right at this moment where um, Franklin and Jefferson, or excuse me, Franklin and Adams are um, kind of wistfully talking about what Jefferson and his wife are doing, um, or might possibly be thinking about doing in the mid-afternoon, because not everyone is from Boston, John. <laughs> and, um, and Adams makes this comment that, uh, that history is going to completely, you know, wipe him out. History is going to... Um, you know, rewrite the revolution as, uh, you know, Franklin, uh, you know, came down Washington from and his, and his horse and his magical electrical rod. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. Guess what? One of my favorite scenes. Yeah. That it happened. Is, it happened. That is, uh, the, the horse part is not part of it, but, but that actually <laughs> does come from a letter that Jefferson wrote to, um, Benjamin, or excuse me, that Adams wrote to Benjamin Rush in 1790. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do feel really bad for for how Adams, as you say, is kind of everyone's favorite whipping post when it comes to revoir pop culture. And guess what? Adams predicted it, which is so <laughs> funny and so sad. And then Hamilton, he's not really good in there either. Oh, so no. he, you know, maybe he needs a musical, John <laughs> Adams. The musical. Well, Miranda should have known that. <laughs> and, he, and he does know it because I believe it's in Act Two of Hamilton. With the sit down, John. The sit down, Jeff. Yeah. Yep. That's the, the nice little nod to 1776. And he did, Lin Manuel yeah. Miranda did write a John Adams rap. Yes. If you haven't 
if you're a Hamilton fan and you are watching this, go to YouTube and find it. It's great. It it's great. a great little kind of um, kind of poking at Adams and his one term um, as president. But then Lin-Manuel Miranda realized that you could literally cut that and just leave that great sit down John reference because 1776 had already put this characterization out there. So when you say that, theater people at least are going to go, yep. oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. that guy. He's yeah. obnoxious and disliked. That cannot be denied. I feel like that is so ironic, given the similarities between Hamilton and 1776, in that they both say such poignant things about who will write the history of the revolution and how will it be remembered. And then for Lin-Manuel Miranda to cut out the Adams rap, I'm like, this is just self-fulfilling prophecies. It's like it's like life imitating art imitating life, and then just it's this this cycle. Um, History repeats itself in so many different forms. <laughs> yeah, and and I feel like that would be a great way to end. That's actually how it was going to end, but we've got 20 more minutes to fill, so we're going to keep going. Um, so you know, something else that I think we can pull in some some musical numbers in this conversation too. But something I was going to ask you guys, like. How do you think this film has aged? Because we've been talking about this as a product of its time. Um, the writing, the language, it's, a, it's very much a product of 1776, but also people's memory of 1776. So like we've just been speaking, um, so much of the, the primary sources, well, the sources that were consulted for a lot of the dialogue are 40 year old remembrances, 19th century remembrances of um, uh, Continental Congress. And plenty of people trying to uh, paint themselves in a certain light 20 years after the fact. Like, exactly. I was totally on board with independence. <laughs> I knew we were going to win. Like, mm, sure. Okay. Sure, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally didn't fight it at all. Um, I was the first one with a pen in my hand to sign my name. <laughs> um, but then... You know, but then we look at it through the lens of the 60s, through the lens of the 70s, and now it's it's really enjoying. I think, I don't think this film ever went away. Um, not in my household, let me no, tell you. Nope. Yep. No, not <laughs> yep. at all. Um, but I think it is, you know, enjoying a small revival because of the success of Hamilton. I think there are more and more people, uh, like the three of us, a little annoyed that everyone's coming out of the woodwork like Hamilton, Hamilton. And we're like, where were you guys when we were watching <laughs> this in our living rooms 20 years ago? Right. Oh, man. You know, where were you? Um, so I am I am glad that a lot of people are refinding um, and re enjoying um, 1776 because of Hamilton. But um, but, you know, how how has this aged? How have the words aged? How do these kind of imagined, um, you know, very political, uh, politically charged conversations. How have they aged um, from, I guess, the late 60s to today? I did a, a rewatch of this for our chat on Friday, uh, which I usually watch it around 4th of July and didn't this year because of Hamilton. Um, so rewatching it Friday, I, I really felt amazed with how well I think it holds up for what it is. And I mean, we've talked about some of the inaccuracies. We might talk a little more about that, but it's so well-rounded. Having um, the female characters, particularly Abigail Adams, 
gives this such depth. It's not just about what's happening in Independence Hall. It's about how this this revolution is already impacting the home front, the mm -hmm. farmers, the everyday Americans. Um, when you have the dispatches and you have that mama look sharp. And I mean, Ugh. that's a song that's written while American young boys and men are off fighting in Vietnam and it mm -hmm, reflects yeah. that. But it also, I mean, you know, I remember reading Johnny Tremaine and those things and you're thinking these are 16 year old guys and it, it's so poignant and so beautiful and it shows the cost of what's already happening. Right. And then you have molasses, rum and slaves and, and, and not just the song, but the entire scene work that mm -hmm. talks about this debate of where where are we going to stand on freedom and and the the book of this musical is so so good um the book was written by peter stone who did a lot of screenplays including charade which is one of my favorite movies with oh, carrie yeah. grant and audrey hepburn um and i think it's one of the best books of a musical period um because that dialogue Yes, you know, they're inventing a lot of conversation. They're, they're inspired by these primary sources, but they have to structure it in a way that builds drama. But the conversations they're having in this film around the, the declaration are conversations we're still having today. They're conversations that reflect a lot of the debates we still have in our government. Are we going to be one United States? Are we 13 sovereign colony or 13 sovereign states there is, these are very interesting questions and i think it holds up all in all really really well and it's really well-rounded and i was so impressed with that and particularly the director's cut where you get the full sort of balance of of this as it was meant to be seen i i agree i i rewatched it for this as well and i um dragged my children to watch it too because it i also watch it july 4th but because of <laughs> hamilton i did not so um so we we had to jerry rig our dv uh d player but um my my two young kids I have an elementary school and a high schooler both were drawn they watched it they enjoyed it they can and they made that connection to you know this is an interesting way to see history i can see you know why why the revolution was hard why the declaration was hard all the different conversations they were having to get to that point in, an, in a relatable way so i think in that um respect it holds up extremely well um would i change some costumes now yeah um <laughs> Uh, that crushed velvet? crushed velvet and some super colonial revival um very very late, things going very on late 60s yeah okay this is a perfect um, 60s more than anything else that's just yeah I, I i would change that part of the movie but um you know musically wise dialogue wise i think it all holds up to the original intention of this movie was to again de cardboard eyes these founders to um get them relatable to see you know how we were formed as a nation through these um these men trying to figure it all out and i i think that's that's its important piece and i don't think that'll ever change because it you know it does do what it was supposed to have done I mean, this is something we're trying to do so much now right. in history and public history and academic history is to try to demythologize, to try to get back to who these people were 
as humans to find the stories that weren't always told. And 1776 did that in 1969. Um, and, and, you know, we keep kind of circling back to this, but yeah, did that way before Hamilton did it. Um, and I think that that aspect of it is going to hold up forever in perpetuity. Uh, and, and I love that about this, this film and about the show. For sure, and I think it, you know, this does circle back around to, um, Becca, the point that you were making earlier about, um, about this being largely written by a high school history teacher. And I think that, um, you know, him working on this in the 1960s, it's very much a part of the new social history movement. Um, this does fall with an interesting conversation about historiography in the 20th century. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Thinking about um, thinking about Hamilton and conversations that that Liz and I had um, with with Mark and others a couple of weeks ago, people looking at Hamilton again and taking it to task for really not um, engaging with again that um, you know the the institution of slavery. Could Hamilton have done more to be to be more inclusive um, and to really tease out some of these really obviously one of, if not the most um, difficult questions of the era. And if you look at 1776, it's there. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the molasses rum and slaves uh, number. I was hoping that we could that we could get to that. Um, so I mean, I think that's the most powerful, most dramatic moment in the film. And for a film that is full of such glaring historical inaccuracies, I think that this I don't want to say excuses it because it doesn't, <laughs> but the but the lyrics of this number, um, the way that you know the South is saying, you know that Rutledge is saying, don't sit all high and mighty in the North because yep. you're complicit in the slave trade, you are benefiting from the slave trade, and none of you are doing anything to stop it. Um, you know just as much as we do that you know that this is the wolf by the ears. Um, yeah. And that is such a powerful, I mean, inaccuracies abound. Those are all broad generalizations, but to make that point for such a, you know, to such a public audience in 1969. In a song. I mean, it wasn't even dialogue. Yeah. In a song right. is just um, is and it's stunning. Powerful. And they, the way yes. that this is done on screen is exactly how it's done. Um, well, I guess I don't know which came first if they do this on the, in the stage production because they did it in the film or if they do it in the film because they did it in the original stage production but if you see this um on the stage this number is performed in very very low light with a spotlight um right on uh rutledge and it's extremely dramatic you can hear a pin drop if you can find a pin from framing him <laughs> to boston well well wow i'm gonna I drink to that that was so that. good kate shot um, no, I mean, you could, you can hear a pin drop after this because it is such a powerful moment. Um, it's and, so sophisticated and it's yes. storytelling and it's so important historically. And I think it's important context to keep in mind that in seven, I mean, at the time that this is set, slavery is the law of the land in every single one of these colonies, including Massachusetts and all the New England. Uh, it'll be Vermont the next year, 1777. But other than that, I, yeah, but uh, yeah, so we'll have it. It'll be over the course of the next few years. But even then, I think that this is the first piece of pop culture I can remember 
engaging with that really looked at this at this more sophisticated level that it isn't just slave owners in the South, that there's financial investment, that there's an entire shipping and trade industry built around this that benefits the entire nation, not just a portion of it. And while, you know, again, the inaccuracies of sort of how the debate goes and all of that, but that clearly slavery was going to be an issue for this document. It could not be in the document in order for this to get done. And that this will be the first of many, many times in our history where this issue is going to get shunted to the side in order to allow a compromise to happen and, and to present it in this piece of pop culture that somebody like Roger Ebert says is silly and, and, and light. And yet for me, this is, oh no, yeah. I mean, that whole second act really, because yeah. you've got the mama look sharp and then into molasses to rum. Um, <laughs> there's some really serious stuff here. It's a fun movie. It's a body movie. It's great I think for families but there is also some really serious reflection happening in 1776. I told my kids that like at that inflection point I was like all right guys it's taking a turn now because it's exactly exactly that and, and I remember it being a little scary as a kid but in and I think an important way right absolutely yep. it's intense as it should be and it uh, yes it should be and the just the and as I said this in our, our chat beforehand, um, John Cullum is the most magical singer to sing it. Cause, and he, it just was so powerful as a singer, as a song, as that storytelling narrative and, um, and really putting the finger on this issue in a way that makes sense to people watching it. And so when you read those two sentences in your history book about the triangle trade, you can go back to this if you've watched it, which you should if you, you know, come on friends. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's on YouTube. But um, just one song, you're, it sums it up. Okay, I, I get it now. And um, it's one of the many pieces that again, holds up for a long time. When John Cullum does this number and he switches to the New England accent, and I think now I, I'm married to a Mainer, so I've heard this more, but he goes, he's been singing and performing in this beautiful Southern draw, and then he switches into it. And it's so mesmerizing and it, it, it really does transport you. And I, I think it's the strongest performance, perhaps maybe after William Daniels as John Adams, um, but it, it makes mm -hmm. the movie for me in a lot of ways. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we had, um, uh, we'll do a, a quick question here. Um, Hello to um, everybody watching. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you guys. Um, so a question, uh, what is everyone's favorite song from the movie? Liz, what's your favorite? God. Um, the egg, I think. <laughs> We're you know the, the egg. Chirp. chirp, chirp. That song was written after they'd already done the poster because the second act was so serious with the, it was mama look sharp and molasses to rum. And they're like, that's too much. And they're like, we need a lighter song. And they'd already done the poster. So that's what inspired Sherman Edwards to write the egg, which I think is a delightful number. Yep. That's a phenomenal piece of trivia. Thank you for that. Um, that's a really good one. What's your favorite, Kate? Oh, I, I think it's gotta be, it's gotta be Lee. The, <laughs> because I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the suit. Certainly. It might be the suit. Um, it might be all the little Easter egg nods to, you know, all of us 
in the know, you know, about, you know, a quick jaunt up to Stratford. Mm-hmm. Um, refresh the, the missus. Yeah, exactly. It's so, the fountain from Friends. I mean, it's got everything you could possibly want. It's oh, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up is that's the same fountain. The yep. exact. If you have seen Friends, which I'm sure most of you have, exact same fountain from the Warner Brothers lot. And you know what? If you're watching this and uh, you haven't seen 1776 yet, it's in Friends. So I mean, it's the same set piece. So that's just like. <laughs> There is your ultimate, like, American pop culture connection. 1776, Friends. I mean, I truly do not know what more you want this musical to deliver for you. (laughs) It is truly the most perfect piece of American cinema um, out there right now. All right, Becca, what's your favorite? I think I'm going to have to go with the Lees of Old Virginia. It's, when I think of watching this movie every year with my family, that's like the song that just always put us into stitches that then we'd be singing for days on end. It's the song I've been singing all weekend since I rewatched this. It is the older I've gotten and the more I've learned about the Lee family tree. It is fun. There are these little historical Easter eggs. I'll be honest. I'm going to do a confession. I thought for a long time he was referencing awful Lee when he was listing all the Lee family members and he says, there's awful Lee. No, it's Arthur, Arthur. which I now know. I now know I'm, 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 I'm a good tour guide guys. I know Arthur, Lee now. <laughs> but f- f- till I was like 22, I thought it was awful Lee. And I was like, that was just that guy's nickname, I guess the, the black sheep of the family. But I like, I like the Leesville, Virginia. I also do like sit down, John. I think it sets such a fun tone for the show. You get this um, this frustration that John Adams feels, this good God, right? It's like the first of the many good gods we're going to get. Um, so I, I do like the sit down, John. And the flies and the heat, it just, it really does take you to this time. You can imagine being in the stuffy room with these stuffy guys and it's 90 degrees. Like, yeah. flies Have everywhere. mercy. Have mercy. Don't please. Don't please. <laughs> it's hot. I did, make, I did make a note when I was watching this earlier that there are some, there are some unsung um, characters um, in this play. Um, not Shout out to Thomas really... McKean from Delaware who really cracks me up in this. Oh yeah. I mean, I was thinking more about like the actual heat in Philadelphia, it's kind of a character of its own. Franklin's gout. Yes, I love the gout. Character yep. of its own. The and, fire uh, wagon. I love the whole fire wagon scene. Oh, it's so awesome. Mean? Where does that come from? Is that just a, surely that's just like a dramatic device to get them out? Well, I, um, I think know. there was one reference to um, the, the fire wagon did bring excitement to the Continental Congress because they were talking about fishing rights and all this terrible stuff. So when oh, the- fishing, Which does make a cameo. So when the fire wagons would go by, everyone would be like, oh my God, what's happening? And then we'd all rush out um, because in firefighting in this time period was volunteer, um, you know, you, you grab your bucket legit and like, <laughs> let's go try to, you know, rescue this And it was uh, usually a, ban- a Band-Aid on a bullet wound at that point. You were, most of the damage was done. Right. Hopefully it's not the city tavern, but, um, yeah. you know, just all these little, little things that they would drop in to, um, you know, to create this, this scene, these little storytelling pieces, like the heat, like, um, you know, all the sexual innuendos throughout the movie, drinking, um, you know, the older think- you get, the more you're like so many innuendos. Yes, and I and I I notice a new one every time I watch. Again, mm-hmm. people just watch this movie. 
if you want to get teenagers to watch, that's how you're going to hook them. Well, and realizing as an adult now, all of the questions I think I asked my mom um, as a small child watching this, what does that mean? Why is that funny? <laughs> I mean, so I love for, for unsung heroes or characters. I like Cupid's Grove, which John Adams mm. mentions multiple times, yes. romping through Cupid's Grove. With which great agility. With great agility. Agility, agility yeah. Yeah, agility. 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 But that that uh, that comes from one of his letters, but much later, and it's an interaction with a woman who was not Abigail. It was after she died, okay. and a woman comes to visit him, and he references the two of them going through Cupid's Grove, and she's like, "Oh, we've done that before." And whoever witnessed this thought it was so touching, and it so showed such a human side of John Adams. They like recorded it. So that's well, sort of like now whenever it comes up in the show, I think of that and I think of him at like 80 and, you know, a widower and just like maybe getting a chance for one last Cupid's Grove wrong. One last leap. Um, all right. Well, we're just about at, at 8 p.m. And I, I did, um, obviously, because um, we can't do anything without mentioning Hamilton, I did kind of briefly want to mention, you know, 1776 in a post-Hamilton world, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that we're all in agreement um, and hopefully our comments are reflecting this too, that, that this really has, 1776 has really aged well um, and can, you know, hopefully help, um, you know, fill in a lot of the, the narrative that, that Hamilton um, doesn't get into. Actually, having watched the two films in very close succession now, <clears throat> multiple times, um, it's really interesting how so many pieces really dovetail um, how you do have one of Washington's dispatches um, read um, in 1776 about him going, um, you know, he's in New York and talking about the troop movements, obviously, it's the summer of 76. And that's he's talking about General Howe and, and coming exactly. into the harbor, and it's, yeah. it, it's exactly like Hamilton, right? General Howe's got troops in the harbor. Yeah, I mean, that's a direct flow into, you know, a lot of um, the major scenes in Hamilton, and I think that's it's interesting if you watch these two together, it'd be very cool to try to splice up some moments. Um, I sincerely hope um, that Hamilton is bringing, and I think it is a new generation to 1776, because yeah. I do think they work so well together because they overlap, mm -hmm. but they're also looking at two different things. And so you can really get a broader picture of Revolutionary War history by watching both than you would get watching just one in isolation. And if maybe you're somebody who hasn't seen Hamilton and you like 1776, I would recommend Hamilton as well. Maybe. <laughs> and I love the fact that they both were 1776, the, the theater that it was in was the Richard Rogers. Yeah. And I mean, how karma, you know, worlds colliding is that I mean history repeating itself yes yeah. absolutely uh. <laughs> the, yeah and you know so um I hadn't seen the film until a couple weeks ago when Liz and I had that conversation um here on ERW um and so I hadn't heard um yeah spoiler alert if you are one of like the one people on the planet that haven't seen Hamilton at this point, <laughs> um um, Eliza's gasp at the end. So I was not aware that that was coming. Um, and having seen that and then rewatching 1776, and this film ends um, very much unresolved. The score is not resolved. 
Um, this ends with the men erroneously, okay, signing the Declaration of Independence. A bell, um, you know, McNair is up there tolling the Liberty Bell for every name that's being signed on this document. Um, and it ends in a very unresolved manner. And a dissonant chord. I exactly. mean, it doesn't, it's like musically wise. It's a, like, I think it's a minor. And, it is, you know, yeah. yeah. And Hamilton is the exact same thing. And, you know, I just think that's such an interesting parallel that both of those productions seem to be, it's not the end, it's not the beginning, we're in the middle of something here. And I mm -hmm. think that's a poignant, a poignant reminder that history is not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, predetermined. It's evolving and emerging and, uh, you know, very much organic. And who knows where we go from here. So want to thank everybody for, for joining us this evening. Uh, it's 8.03. Thank you for letting us take up three more minutes of your <laughs> evening. Um, thank you for joining us here on Facebook. Please look at the other events that um, ERW has coming up. Um, on Facebook, and please check out our uh, website as well. Looks like we've got a happy hour coming up um, that I want to make sure everybody knows about. Um, so please check us out um, on, right here on Facebook and uh, uh, keep looking for updates for more events like this coming your way. Um, again, my name is Kate Gruber, and I am thanking very much Liz Williams from Historic Alexandria and our brand new debut uh, panelist here, Becca Girl. Thank you so much for joining us from DC. Thank you for having me. And please check out um, Historic Alexandria and, of course, DC Tours by Foot and a Tour of Her Own on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you so much, everybody, and we look yeah, forward yeah. to seeing you next week for another Rev War Revelry. Go watch this movie. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Thank you, guys. Thank you for watching. Woohoo!